This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, this is Lisa, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people share real stories of alcoholism and recovery. I'm here tonight with my co-hosts, Amanda and Ellie. Hey, Lisa. Hey. Hey. Uh, Tonight's show, we will highlight the things that you do to stay sober. If you attend recovery meetings, what else do you do to supplement your recovery? If you do not attend recovery meetings, what do you personally do to stay sober? And how did you find your sober network? Many times when people talk about recovery, they talk about recovery meetings, 12-step and otherwise. And while recovery meetings are at the core of many people's recovery, for this show, we will discuss the many ways people stay sober in addition to or even instead of meetings. We just want to point out at the beginning that this is not a meetings versus no meetings discussion or debate. At the Bubble Hour, we're very careful to not to never endorse or promote any one form of recovery. Tonight, we will mention specific recovery programs by name, but we will keep it anonymous by not using any of the people's names of the stories that we share. We uh, do believe in most cases it is uh, many things that help people stay in recovery. We also believe that at the core of successful recovery is a sober network. <clears throat> And we will also discuss this through our own stories and the stories that are shared tonight by others. We will hopefully offer many viewpoints and options, if you're listening, 
um, and you want to get and stay sober, hopefully something here will help you. Ellie, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and share with us your uh, recovery plan and sober network. I would be happy to. Thank you, okay. Lisa. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking sort of about this in a couple of different parts because as my recovery evolves, so does my recovery plan. I think a lot of people who listen to the show are either new to recovery or looking to get sober. So I'll just start by talking about kind of the things that I did in my earliest recovery, which really involved changing patterns and habits all the way around. I mean, I had come to terms with the fact that I couldn't drink anymore, but, you know, I was a, what I would call a kitchen drinker. I didn't go to the bar every night, and so I couldn't just simply avoid the bar. I mean, my kitchen was my bar. So I really had to look at the times of day where I was triggered and the things that triggered me and try to develop alternative habits. And as such, I mean, I changed a lot of things. I changed the door that I walked into my house because walking in, you know, after being out of the playground or out for the afternoon, walking in my door, I would always just walk right to the fridge and get a drink. And so I started walking in a different door. I drove down different roads so that I wouldn't have to go by my usual liquor store haunts. I was definitely had the hardest time during what we call the witching hour, you know, those hours between anywhere from 4 to 8 o'clock. And so I tried to cultivate new habits for that time of day. At the time, my kids were, I guess they were 5 and 2. So we would go to the playground in the evening instead um, of being around the house, you know, right around 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, we'd go to the playground or we'd go out for a walk or go to an early movie. Anything just kind of went out to dinner a lot just to be able to not have to cook dinner. It was almost a, a cooking dinner was a big trigger for me. So anything that I felt put my sobriety in, je- in jeopardy or triggered me, I still don't cook. You know, all these years later, I, I use the excuse that it's a trigger. Basically, I just don't like to cook. But it definitely, I had to change all of those things and look pretty closely at them. And I knew, having been in a rehab for 30 days, that having a sober network of people was really important. But I didn't know anyone personally who had gotten sober, and I knew that at AA I would find sober people. So that's where I went. And meetings are definitely still at the core of my recovery plan in the early days. They were very much so because I needed to find a sober network, and that's where I knew I could get one, and I did. And as my recovery has progressed, well, actually, I want to backtrack a little bit. Another thing that I did in the earlier days that I continue to do if I'm under stress or struggling in any way now, I found non-harmful ways to distract myself. I watched a lot of really dumb TV. I read books that didn't make me think too much. I played video games. I did, because what my brain wanted was that escape. I just didn't want to feel for a while. And instead of drinking, I tried to find things that would help my brain kind of turn off um, and not think for a while. And anything was better than drinking. So if I had to play two hours of gem drop, that's what I did. (laughs) I didn't apologize for it. But now I have built up my, both my sober network is, I have meetings that are in my, in my quote unquote real life. And I have a very strong community online, which is is fantastic because there were times late at night when I just needed to see if anyone was on to chat and you're not necessarily going to call someone on the phone. Because to me, really at the core of my recovery program is communication and talking to people. And that's something I still struggle with. Reaching out and asking for help is very hard for me. So sometimes I'm really only able to do it from behind the 
you know, perceived safety of my computer screen. Maybe some days I wouldn't want to pick up the phone, but I could pick up, you know, an email or a text, and it still counts as connecting with sober people. So I also go to um, yoga classes. I've even found yoga classes that are for recovering people. I'm working on meditation and exercise and things that are just what I consider all self-care. And it takes some work to carve the time out, especially with young children, and remind myself that it's important to do that. Because if I start sacrificing those things that help to sustain me, you know, things that the stress levels start to rise pretty quickly. And I've realized the hard way that increased stress really does put your, your recovery in jeopardy. So for me, it always definitely has boiled down to the sober people who are in my life, whether they're online or offline, in meetings or out. You're just even bumping into somebody that I know from recovery in the supermarket can be the thing that helps me get to the end of the day sometimes. And so that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, thank you, Ellie. One of the ladies in our online recovery community suggested this show topic, and we're very grateful for it because we feel like it will definitely help many. She asked that we share her recovery plan tonight, and it's very valuable and also practical information that I really think can be implemented in some way for many people working on a plan. And she wrote, <clears throat> for me, my, my, yoga, my yoga community has been crucial. Being so negative toward and about myself for so long took a huge toll on my self-esteem and emotional health. And so I really needed a place that was essentially based in positive energy and being mindful. I needed something to help me build my own belief in myself again, if I ever had any to begin with. And to my surprise, the vast majority of my yoga buddies also came to the mat seeking help or relief or even a healthy habit and found it in their practice. Specifically, getting into a deep and regular practice forced me to rely on myself, both physically and emotionally, to show up. That was huge for me, just showing up. As I physically got stronger, I emotionally got stronger. It made me calmer, kinder, more empathetic, and desiring of, well, of living well. That said, it didn't fix me. You know, there's also rigorous honesty with myself, a lot of inner reflection, and a work with a holistic therapist and nutritionist. She forces me to identify where I, gave, why, where I give away my energy, what I want in life, and how to nourish myself. I had to cut out, except on occasion, watching angry reality television, which sounds silly, but I found really triggering and made me feel edgy. I put myself out there, which is hard and very scary. Another thing that I was missing was a social circle, a social life that I could count on. So I've been working on that, trying new things, asking people to spend time with me, as opposed to the, why would they want to spend time with me? Staying busy, but, allow, but allowing myself to chill and do nothing every once in a while. Reading constantly. As time has gone on, I found myself craving more creative and intellectual stimulation. Whereas when I was drinking, I didn't have the energy or patience for much. But I definitely still use mindless TV and magazines or books when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Using the online community, something I thought I'd never do or understood, and here I am. Ha. Huh. I've worked a lot on finding true ways, true healthy ways to express myself creatively, a result of feeling like I was hiding or shoving my true self down for so many years. But one of the biggest things has been doing the work on myself to identify what triggers are, what makes me anxious, and how to deal with those times. I'm a work in progress, and I may go, I may go the therapist AA route eventually, but for now, what I'm doing is working. I thought that was a wonderful way to start. Because, yeah, very well put. Yes, yeah, very well. And then another another share 
from someone else in our recovery community was, for me, creating new habits. Rituals are the mechanism by which we convert the chemistry of pessimism into optimism. And that was a quote by Twilight Tharp. The habit and faith invested every day in sobriety is converting it into an act that provides immense comfort and strength. I believe new habits and rituals placed me on a different path. Somehow, the new habits morphed into recovery. The rituals eliminated voices and exceptions, habitualized my choice not to drink, and made it repeatable and easier to do the next day. I fully surrendered everything and sought sobriety and recovery with my whole heart. Daily rituals and renewing myself every day reduced the chance that I would drink or engage in self-destructive behavior again and have created a different environment for me. That becomes, ha- becomes habit-forming. I also nourished myself to, repl- to replenish and repair. I had to step back from yoga and exercise for over a year on my path to recovery because it is a trigger for me. But I am back exercising, and I feel a different release and soulfulness from it. I'm learning that coping skills are useless unless you really actually use them as coping skills. Rituals and habits and surrender are at my core. Wow, that was great, too. Okay, Amanda, you there, Amanda? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Okay, so like Lisa said, we asked many people to share their stories, and we had a huge response with a lot of variety. So here's a a couple more that I'm going to share. I joined a gym when I got sober. I loved going and especially loved it in the beginning because everyone is sober at the gym. To me, it felt like a safe place. I also realized that working out calmed me and helped me burn off anxiety. And another share is I go to group therapy. I go to a group ther- therapy aftercare program run by our local health unit. It's led by a counselor. We have mixed addictions, alcohol, drugs, gambling so far, but all are welcome. Respectful crosstalk is encouraged, and the counselor is teaching us to recognize our own BS and the BS and others BS and pointed out nicely. We are going, we are doing relapse prevention work right now. And I, I love that show. That's, that's really interesting. Like the, pointing out other people's BS nicely. That's, that's one thing about having a community is that, and getting to know people is that when you're not telling the truth or you're not being truthful with yourself, they can call you on your stuff. And to me, I know that was very important. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. So I wrote this out just because I was afraid I'd get too long-winded, and I know we have a lot to share, so I'll share with you what I did, my own path, and it's very random and varied and It doesn't go by any rules, and it just kind of is something that worked for me. 
if at any point I feel that my personal recovery that I'm doing now is not enough, I, won't, I will immediately change my path. In other words, I'm not afraid to make a change. But this is how it went for me. I first dipped my toe into the waters of recovery by finding the Yahoo group, Booze Free Brigade. I felt safe behind my computer screen, like you, Ellie, like you were saying earlier, and I poured over what other women and a few men had written about their journey. I was absolutely amazed that I was not the only one in this situation. Soon after that, I found Ellie's blog, Crying Out Now, and I read every single entry. I mean, really, every single entry, maybe 10 times each, submitted, and I held on to what those women said like a lifeboat. I was at my lowest, but I found the courage because of the brave women who shared before me to eventually make an appointment with my therapist. I went to her and told her the whole truth. For the first time in my life, I admitted everything about myself and my drinking behavior. I had seen therapists before. I had twisted the truth, also known as lied, just enough to be told that I was not an alcoholic. I wanted to be anything but an alcoholic. This time, I forced myself to tell it all. I wrote it out and took it to her in a notebook because I did not trust myself to be completely honest unless it was literally in black and white. That was really the beginning of recovery, true recovery for me. She helped me develop a plan. Going to therapy helped me understand the phrase, the only way out is through. In order for me to get well, I had to get it all out. As painful as it was at the time, I finally began to find freedom with each of my very frequent visits. Each time I opened up, I felt a little bit of freedom afterward, which eventually added up to a better me, a more evolved me. I have learned so much in therapy about myself as well as, and most importantly, tools that I had never learned previously, tools for dealing with life on life's terms without the numbing aid of alcohol. I learned simple things that I had previously been clueless about, such as little things like the little quote, a thought is not a fact. A thought really is not a fact. And it's okay to not always wear my perfect human being mask. It's okay for me to be flawed because I'm a human being, and that's what we are. We're flawed. I'm learning to accept myself slowly but surely, as I am also working on myself to be the best person I can be. That does not mean I have to be perfect, though. These kinds of thoughts and ideas may be commonplace for some people, but for me, these thoughts are foreign. I am open and receptive to what my therapist suggests that I do. I have come to the realization that the way I was doing life in the past was not working for me. So I let go of my mentality of control, and I open myself to listening to someone besides myself. I'm also very active in my online recovery community. I love the friends I've made through that community. The connection is deep because we all share the same ultimate goal, sobriety and recovery. I do attend recovery meetings, but I did not venture into the world of meetings, AA meetings, until months after I got sober. I decided to go because I wanted to connect with other people in real life who were like me, alcoholics. I love, 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 love sober alcoholics. Love, love, love. And I wanted to find some. Although a specific recovery program did not get me sober or keep me sober, they have expanded my sober community. I like to also, besides just the meetings and the things that I do. I also like to paint, and I I like to run and listen to music and play music, and I like to watch mindless television and play with my children and read recovery blogs as well as mindless just trashy magazines and novels and stuff that where I don't really really have to think. All of these things are what kept me sober and what keep me sober. And I'd like to point out now 
how varied my personal experience has been because I feel that it is important for anyone listening to understand there's not just one specific thing that can work for you or me. In fact, there may be a hundred little things added together that will keep us sober. So that's kind of in a nutshell. I mean, I could go on forever, but that's kind of my little brief way for me. And again, whatever it takes. I love that message, too, that there isn't any one single thing that I think, um, just a little editorial here, that being open and willing to take new suggestions and try new things is really important because there have been things that I have flat out told myself I will not do, and then I tried them. Yoga was one of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now it's a really core part of of my, not just my recovery, but my life. So we have some more shares from people who we asked the question about what do you do to stay sober and one was I have a really good psychiatrist and meditation not trying to have the social life I had only sober cutting out people places and things that are detrimental to sobriety and another one said I call my sponsor when I take a trip to crazy town and I can't get back (laughs) like that (laughs) through the bubble hour show Sorry, through the Bubble Hour show on relapse, I learned that there are many signs that a relapse is coming and how to head that off. I don't even have the desire to drink, but if I stay in my crazy head, I might. For example, on Monday morning, I was all worked up about an article one of my friends posted on Facebook four days ago. I couldn't calm myself down and kept obsessing about it, getting frustrated that since I lost my phone, I couldn't type a reply. At noon at work, when I had a break from meetings, I called my sponsor. She helped me find out that it wasn't the article at all. I was upset because because by losing my phone, I felt I had lost all connection to my support network, the BFB, and phone numbers of other alcoholics. She also reminded me that my higher power is always with me and that I'm never without that support. Within a few minutes, I was back in normal land and forgot about the article, actually. Awesome! I'm I love very it. familiar with Crazy Town. <laughs> yes, I'm. I live there. Well. Yeah. Okay, Amanda. All right. Well, when this topic came up, it made me think of a letter that I wrote to the hearings board when I applied for my hardship license, which ex- explains my recovery in the early days in detail. And just to give you a little background, I got sober after being arrested for my second DUI. And this is not something that I'm proud of, obviously, but I'm grateful for that arrest because that's what it took to get me sober. Mm -hmm. And in Massachusetts, you automatically lose your license for two years with a second DUI, but you can apply for a work license, which is the hardship license, where you can drive 12 hours a day, basically, to, to get to and from work. And after a year without a license and after you've completed all the court-ordered programs, you can apply. So I went to apply in the registry that immediately denied me um, my application, and so I had to request a hearing. And the hearing is held in a courtroom, and there's a panel of three people, I think one from the district attorney's office, one from the registry, and one from, like, the insurance board of the state, something like that. So I went into the court, the regular courtroom, and I walked in there, and everyone had a lawyer except me. So I was waiting my turn, and I was pretty anxious. Mm-hmm. And and I, so when they finally called me up there, I went up by myself, and they read off all my charges and everything, going back to, like, you know, parking tickets and stuff from when I was young. And then they ended with, 
me being arrested for a second offense DUI on August 22nd with a blood alcohol level of 3.0, which is way high. And the whole panel, you could just see them, they were like, wow. Yeah. And so I just took a deep breath and I said, I know, that's really awful. And, and then I told, you know, I said, I wrote a letter and I wondered, you know, I'm very nervous. Can I read this to you? So this is the letter that I read. I said to the Board of Appeal, thank you for taking the time to review my application for a hardship license today. Below, I have provided a timeline of the actions I have taken since my arrest on August 22, 2010. My sobriety date is August 24, 2010. I have remained continuously sober for the past 15 months. On August 24, 2010, I checked myself into a treatment facility, and I was discharged on August 29th. I attended my first AA meeting outside of treatment on August 30th. On August 31st, I met with my employer and, and informed them that I am an alcoholic and I needed to get some help. We agreed that I would go, to a, go out on short-term disability so I could fo focus on my recovery. I returned to work full-time on October 4th. September 3rd through September 24th, I participated in an intensive outpatient program at a facility in Worcester, Massachusetts, which consisted of group counseling three times a week and indiv weekly individual counseling. Upon completion of the program, I attended weekly alternatives in recovery and it was an alternatives in recovery group through uh, the end of October. The hearing for my arrest was on October 1st, and I pled guilty and was charged with a second offense OUI. I attended the second offender aftercare program at, in Framingham from October 13, 2010 through October 18, 2011, at which time I was just discharged from the program. So that was a weekly counseling session that I had. I completed the 14-day residential dual program for second offenders from, for two weeks in November of 2010, and that was an in, inpatient program, very similar to jail, actually. I have had random drug and alcohol testing throughout the time this time and have never tested positive. I have complied with all the requirements of my court probation, and oops, I lost my my way here. After leaving my arraignment on August 23rd, I knew that I had a problem and needed to get help, but I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, I have an excellent support system. My father and my best friend are both in recovery, and they suggested I go away to rehab. I knew the courts would probably order me into some kind of program, but I didn't want to wait weeks or months for my hearing, and I knew that I needed to do this for myself. The next day, I started making phone calls and was lucky enough to find a bed at a treatment facility. When I was in treatment, I accepted the fact that I am an alcoholic and I am powerless over alcohol. The counselor suggested I go to 90 meetings in 90 days and enroll, enroll myself in an intensive outpatient program, so that's what I did. Ever since my first AA meeting on August 30th, I have attended AA meetings on a regular basis. For the first five weeks, before I returned to work, I attended one to three meetings a day. I far exceeded the 90 meetings in 90 days that was recommended to me when I was discharged from detox. After returning to work, I continued going to meetings five to seven times a week. I joined several groups, got a sponsor, and became active, an active participant in AA. I have had and still have numerous jobs in AA, including treasurer for one group and secretary of another. 
I have chaired meetings. I speak at commitments with my groups. And recently, I've begun acting as a temporary sponsor for several women. I attend the following meetings on a weekly basis, and I listed out um, five of my regular meetings. I take my sobriety and my recovery very seriously and have every intention of remaining sober for the rest of my life, one day at a time. I am sure you will ask me what is different this time, and I can only tell you the truth. Prior to my arrest on August 22, 2010, I thought I could control my drinking. After my arrest, I finally realized and admitted that I am an alcoholic and I cannot drink in safety. I wish I could take back the things that I did in the past, but I can't. I can only go forward. Today, I can honestly say that I am grateful that I was arrested because that is what it took for me to realize that I needed help and to get sober. My father told me my arrest was probably the best thing that could have happened to me, although I didn't believe him at the time. He was right. I would not trade my sobriety for anything in the world. I am applying for this hardship license because it is very difficult for me to get to work. I work. I depend on rides to get me to and from the train station, and then I, which is nine miles from my house, and then I walk to and from my office another mile and a quarter. Thank you for considering my application for hardship license. Driving a motor vehicle is a privilege, and I hope that I have demonstrated to you that I have learned my lesson from my mistakes I have made in the past. Sincerely, Amanda. And so that was my letter, and I can tell you I was uh, doing my best not to cry when I read that. And it was hard, and, but I, I can, I rem I'll never forget that day, and it was the best feeling in the world. I, I thought about it a lot, you know, be, before I went that day. Do I, you know, kind of skim the surface or would maybe not tell the full truth? And, but I have nothing to be ashamed of, you know. And so I just went in there, and it was the best feeling in the world to just be able to stand up, hold my head high, and not worry. Whatever happened, happened. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take good care for recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. Okay, so we have some more shares, and this is basically what this whole show is, just sharing things that were shared with us and... Hopefully, again, the people, you guys listening, will find it helpful and take what you need from it. One person said that she had to change her routine. Two of the very best things she did for herself was, number one, get the S-bomb out of my house. I had to think about that for a second. For the witching hour, I am a stay-at-home mom, and I have two small children, two and four, and three o'clock was my witching hour. So now I prep dinner every morning by getting up super early. Uh, 
so that it isn't a stressful issue and we go somewhere. We go to the park, we go to McDonald's, we go to Playland, Puppet Up, Playground Mall, Chuck E. Cheese, doesn't matter, as long as I am not in my house. I erase that whole kiss, screaming, fighting, running around like lunatics, making a decent meal when it's their father getting home chaos. Now we stroll in. Dad's already there to entertain them while I finish making dinner. We eat. We have a bedtime routine. Kids in bed. All is good. And I get the treat I've been waiting for. Whatever super expensive tea Tivana has that week. And the second thing on her list is she changed her waking sleeping hours. In bed by 9 with teeth brushed to read or surf the web. Up by 5 to have time to myself. I read, do yoga, I run, I make lists, or I just stare out the window. Sometimes I go to the gym or a coffee shop to people watch. It still freaks me out to see all these other put-together non-hungover people out and about so early. (laughs) And then another share was changes to my routine. Again, I'm seeing that a lot. Like driving home from work a different route every few days so I don't pass by the same liquor store. Two meetings and a sponsor meeting each week. I can't imagine my recovery without them. But if I didn't have that, I would probably replace that with counseling. Reading recovery articles. BSB Facebook group multiple times a day. The Bubble Hour podcast while surfing the net at night. I reincorporated daily prayer, meditation, and active. And I'm also active in my spiritual path again. I schedule quality one-on-one time with each kid during the week. Evening walks, baths, and multiple showers. I go to bed early, but I have been a bit of an insomniac, so I'm lurking online and on Pinterest or my new fave, The Vine. Some kind of app. Okay. Ellie? All right. So we have some more here. One is, I started doing yoga, which really helped calm my mind. I check in on the BFB first thing when I wake up in the morning and last thing I do before bed. I read recovery books. I attend AA meetings. I listen to AA speaker tapes. You can also, I'm just going to add a little sidebar, get a pod, or speaker podcast too, I believe. I listen to the Bubble Hour podcasts. I connect with online sober friends. I talk to my parents who are both sober. I spend a lot, a lot more time than I used to doing self-care. I also ask for help when I need it, and I have learned how to say no. I, that really resonated with me because one of the things that I heard early on, it took me a while to kind of put it into practice, was that somebody came up to me and said, Ellie, you know, no is actually a complete sentence. And I had to really think about that one. But one of the things that I, that I love to do, even in recovery, is I just like people to like me, and I'm a yes person, so I would take on too much. And that was just building up the possibility for future resentments when I say yes to things when I really meant no. And so being able to say no to things that I don't have time for or don't want to do is a big part of my recovery plan, too. Another share we got was it helped me in the early days of my recovery to adopt a beautiful dog from the Humane Society and take her on walks. I bought fun, fancy, bubbly, non-alcoholic drinks, exotic teas, chocolates, candy, and coffee. I go to AA meetings four to six times a week. I also see a therapist once a week. I try and meet up with BFB people in person any chance I can get. I hike, bike, watch birds, read recovery books, and go on the BFB every day. I hang out with AA people, bake lots of cookies, perform with, I perform with the sketch comedy troupe I'm in. I journal and pray and reach out to other alcoholics. The most important thing I learned in early recovery was how to ask for help, often from complete strangers. I also bought myself flowers, which I never did when I used to drink. I love that. 
Another wonderful thing I did was to buy myself a gift whenever I had a sobriety milestone, and I also listened to the bubble hour. Awesome. Uh, and here's an, I love that too. Here's another. Asking for help was a huge one for me. Literally changed my life. On a plane, I actually let someone help me with my stroller, and it made him happy, and you could tell. Usually, I carry one kid, handle a giant bag, stroller, and hold the other kid's hand, all because I'm so strong and I can do it myself. I know how to do things on my tab tablet because I asked my husband how. I was prepared to just never cut and paste. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That I love is. I love that. <laughs> Two girlfriends came over and helped me clear out my basement to prep for a garage sale and an overwhelming task that had me on my knees but turned into a fun night. I love giving up and asking for help. I hope to someday be a person who can cherish time doing Legos. I have an active and strong use for Legos. <laughs> of Legos, yeah. Although yeah. she says active and strong hate of Legos. Yes. <laughs> Even even with sobriety, some things never change. Oh, that's awesome. I have to say, asking for help with not having a license for 17 months, that was ingrained in me. I had to ask for help everywhere for everything that I wanted to do. And I'm, I'm grateful for that, too, because I know that I needed some training on asking for help because that was something I never did. Okay, um, Amanda, maybe you can train me. I need some help in that area. Natalie, they can train me. Okay, great. Yeah. Perfect. We'll work on that. And here's another shared gratitude list. Oh, I love these. That is a huge part of my sobriety. Having a community I email these to and read their list is really, really helpful. Also, yoga, huge in my sobriety. Texting, asking for help, calling a friend when I'm feeling squirrely, meditation, specifically meta practice. Telling on myself, praying for those I resent. Hey friends, that's the end of this shortened version of this conversation. It does extend uh, closer to an hour, which you can hear over on Patreon. Uh, Patreon members have access to our entire backlist, full-length episodes ad-free. So if that interests you, you'll find a link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash the bubble hour and have a look at how to access that. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you all the best. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on me.
Just want to be free from power 